Go ahead and pray for us and open us up in uh, a word of prayer. Please bow with me. Almighty God, you are the giver, not just of every perfect gift, but you're the maker of every perfect thing. You're the maker of us, all things in heaven, all things that we see, all things that even our eyes can't see, the telescopes can't peer into. You have made them. Lord, we praise you, for we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Help us to glory in your making of us on earth and your remaking of us in heaven and in glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we continue in our series on the Apostles' Creed, we come in the beginning of it to this, uh, this phrase, the maker of heaven and earth. I believe in God the Father Almighty. And then the Creed goes into this classic point about creation, maker of heaven and earth. So if you want to know where we'll be in the Bible this morning, you can look at uh, the first chapter or two of the Bible and the last couple of chapters of the Bible. First two and last two. Beginning and the end are always important in any story. If you just have the middle, it's like coming into a conversation and not knowing what it's all about. And we need to know the beginning, we need to know the end. And when the Bible, when the Creed and the Bible speak about God as the maker of heaven and earth, they give us really several key points. There's a lot of discussion, of course, about these chapters in, in our day uh, because we tend to ask a lot of modern questions. When did the earth begin? How did the earth begin? Uh, we tend to get into a lot of questions about um, evolution and science. And I think in so doing, those are fine questions to ask. Those are appropriate things to discuss. But in so doing, we actually miss a lot of what the Bible is trying to teach us. We actually, uh, if you will, major on the minors. We major on the minors of Scripture, and we miss the major resounding gong and theme of Scripture. And so this morning, we're going to look at uh, what the opening chapters of the Bible actually show us about God as the maker of heaven and earth. This opening chapter is kind of, I don't know if you ever played Jenga before. I did when I was a kid. I'm awful at Jenga. You know, I don't, I don't have the kind of hand-eye, the, the fine motor skill to be a surgeon. I also don't have the fine motor skill to be a good Jenga player. And I would often pick one at the top, because you know, it's easy, like the second or third row. And I'd try to take it out, and maybe I would, and then I'd just knock it all off. I'd fumble around. Well, this is a chapter of the Bible. This opening chapter is kind of one of the Jenga pieces at the bottom. It's the Jenga piece at the very bottom row of the Bible Jenga Tower. If this chapter is taken out or neglected or misinterpreted, the whole thing comes crashing down. We read in the first verse what the creed tells us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What are the implications of this verse? What are the implications of the statement that you confess as a basic part of a Christian? There are many. I have maybe five here, I suppose, at least on your handout. Uh, I didn't give you all the details. You may have to take some notes yourself if you want to. But let's first look at um, what many have called the distinction between the creator and the creature. If God is the maker of heaven and earth, that means that we're made. We are the objects, we're the creatures that are made. What does that mean? It's interesting, even before you get into that question, if, if you compare this creation account with all the other ones that were popular in the cultures around it. 
there's one really key thing that sticks out. Several, but at least one key thing. Most of the time, if you look at, um, for example, the uh, Greek work by Hesiod, the uh, Enuma Elish in Babylon, if you look at the Hittite creation myths, um, you'll find that they're often very violent. There are things being body parts cut off to make the world. There's a lot of enslavement. Humans are basically slaves to clean up the pollution of the gods fighting each other. It's as if you were a bystander in one of the superhero films that are very popular these days, and the gods are all fighting the heroes and the villains on either side, and you're kind of caught in the crossfire between Superman and Lex Luthor. You know, uh, you're, you're kind of just a bystander. That, that's humanity in most of these creation accounts. There's a battle. There are people who cut themselves open to make the world. It's therefore not surprising that for a lot of people, and a lot of theories about the way the world works today even, violence is key. Power struggles, dominance, getting more. The struggle for blood, the struggle for life. This is what Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes says, right? War of all against all. It's what Marx says, right? The class struggle. The new can only be created if the old is conquered and destroyed and subdued. This is what you see in so much of our American world today. This party or this group wants to take over this group or that group, and this group reacts against that. There's battle, there's division, there's strife, there's discord. So our modern creation stories, our ancient creation stories, all of them, they tend to be battle-focused, military affairs. And yet you open up this chapter right here. There's no violence. There's no conquest because there's nothing to oppose God. There's nothing else in the book at the start that is against God. There's no rival. There's no supervillain. Nobody's stealing away the sun. Nobody's, you know, uh, pulling up his, pre, his trees, his plants. And we see that because... This is a very ordered, this is one of the most tightly written and well-structured parts of the Bible. One of the most tightly ordered. Just read through it and you can see this. Look at how many times we're told, and God said. And God said. Let there be, let there be. And there was, and there was. And God saw it was good. And God saw it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning. First, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth day. There's order here. There's structure here over and over again. And that tells us two key messages. First, that when it comes to the difference between our way of looking at the world and God's way of creating the world and making heaven and earth, He does it without conflict. There's no opposition to Him. He speaks and it happens. He said that, and it comes into being. His word's powerful. It's well-ordered. It does not stumble into being by chance, which is the other key option. There are two key options in, in modern world and the ancient world for how the world comes into being. Either there's a battle or it just happened by chance. It, it supposedly occurred just randomly. And we don't see that here. We see that God has a plan, and the plan faces zero opposition. He makes it, and it happens. 
He says, and it does, He creates heaven and earth. And secondly, this shows us not just that there's order and structure and that's free from violence, but it shows that there's harmony, that the ideal world is actually a world of peace and harmony. That, that John Lennon, in imagine, imagine right, a world where there is peace, that's not a bad song. There should be, in, in some of his parts, that, that's not a bad hope. We should hope for a world of peace. We should hope for a world of love. We should hope for a bedrock world of harmony because that's how God made it. Not a world of discord, not a world of war, not a world of violence. A lot of times whenever you hear about peaceniks, right, you think about the hippies. You think, oh, those naive fools, those idiots. Well, when you seek peace as a Christian, you're not whistling in the dark. You're actually calling the world back to what is most fundamental. God is a God of peace. And that's not the only thing about God, of course. There is is, uh, conflict that will come. But at the very beginning, we need to recognize that the Bible depicts a world of harmony and peace. And yet there's a distinction here. It is this right here. There is a key distinction. It's a, it's a foundational distinction. It's not between God and the devil. That's where a lot of folks go wrong. They say, well, you know, there's the good God, there's the bad devil. You know, there's heaven, there's hell, and they both kind of rule over their various spectrums. No, 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 no. The devil's made in chapter 3 as a creature. He's shown as a creature under God's authority. In zero way is the devil a rival. Notice also that when we read in verse 1 that God creates the heavens and the earth, that means there's no part that's not created. There's no part that's kind of a rival part of creation against God. Rather, the distinction is between God and everything else. The distinction is between God and all things, everything. God and all things. Not, as most of us tend to play with, God and us, or God and all things in one big happy circle. That's the way uh, the Greek gods were. That's the way the superheroes are. That's the way uh, we often play off religion. All in one big circle, all in one big pot, all together. But this key truth of the creator-creature distinction is central. Carl Sagan, the, uh, the atheist, says, the cosmos is all there is or ever was or ever will be. That's the one circle view. That's the one circle view. It's all, there, all you see is all there is. All you see is all there is. Um, however, this biblical account, uh, in the words of the theologian uh, Van Til, It's our business as Christians to begin our interpretation of reality upon the presupposition of the creator-creature distinction as basic to everything else. You see, you're either going to be a one-circle gal or a two-circle gal. You're either going to say, all is God, all is stuff, all is what I see, all is something, all is Mother Nature, all, all is class struggle, all is... Work ethic, all is whatever. Politics, money, you name it. Or you'll be a two-circle person. And the Bible says Christians are two-circle people. 
There's a key critical distinction. This means, by the way, uh, this results at least in three significant consequences. First, there's nothing in between God and the world. There's no like other God in between. This is what Plato, this is what a lot of folks want to want to say. God's high and mighty. He's very spiritual. He doesn't get his hands dirty with matter. He doesn't come down into the muck and the mire. And this results in Christians who just talk about spiritual things. You know, today we'll be uh, we'll be uh, ordaining a deacon. Father Roll the Jackin is practical service, a, a depiction of a God who cares about material, practical, real life, because God created the heavens and the earth. Second, I've already mentioned this, there's no rival God. There's nobody out there who can contend with God. He has no peers. This is what the early church was persecuted for. Caesar is God. Caesar's Lord. Just worship Caesar and worship your God. No, no, there's no rival. And third, and perhaps the most important distinction, the most important, rather, consequence of this view, God is not just a souped-up version of you. His anger is not just a a uh, little more of your anger. His love is not just a little better than your love. Uh, he's not just the smartest creature out there. He's not just the strongest guy in the room. He's not just the best creature. He is capital O other. That means you can't, you shouldn't. We ought not to make God in our image. We ought not to make God in our own image or to project on him our, our aspirations. So, creator-creature distinction. Questions on any of that? Pushback, thoughts? Anything I can clarify for you? Second thing to note here. Creator-creature distinction. And this is a key point here. Second, we live in a gratuitous world. We usually use the word gratuitous today to mean like violence, like oh, too much violence in a movie or whatever. And that's not really a good way of using it. We also use it for tips. You give, you look at your, next time you go out to eat, look at your receipt and you'll see gratuity. Sometimes it even says gratuity added, which forces you to give something, which is a weird concept I'm not dealing with. But the reality that the opening chapters of Scripture point to is that God is gratuitous. God is a gratuitous God. This follows from the creator creature distinction. God creates freely. One of the, the key reasons why the Bible says God is maker of heaven and earth is that he didn't have to make heaven and earth. To put it in nerd terms, the universe is not necessary. It's contingent. God does not create because he has to. He did not have some need that you really meet because you're so amazing. Isn't that what we think? We think I'm so special. I'm the best snowflake in the world. God does not need me. He does not need you to fulfill his plan. That's a harsh reality. But it's what Paul says in Acts 17, beginning in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God owns every talent you have. He owns all of your treasure. He owns all of your time. He owns your very self. You cannot add anything to him. You cannot make him in debt to you. You cannot make him greater. You are in every way dependent on him. He is in zero way, no way dependent upon us. Completely 
gratuitous. You may be important. We are precious. We are created on the sixth day. We are the crown of creation, but just the crown of creation, not the creator, still the creature. We are glorious, but we are gloriously unnecessary, but glorious nonetheless. Now, if that's, the, if that's true, if, if, if we do confess God's maker of heaven and earth, as we do in the creed, if creation is gratuitous, what does that mean about you and me? Our life, therefore, is entirely shaped. Your perspective on your life must be one of grace received. Gratuity given by God. You receive your meaning from God. You receive love from God. And yes, as you receive it, you create, right? You, you, you pattern God. You follow God by creating in beautiful ways. We'll get to that down the road. But God gratuitously crafts the world. And the one thing you never should do with a gift is to pretend you bought it yourself, right? The one that you should never do with a gift is to pretend you made it yourself. And that'd be awful. You know, you, you get a gift, you say, oh yeah, mine, I did it my way, I did it myself. No, you didn't. Your wife got it for you. Your kids got it for you. What do you do with a gift? You thank the giver. You say, thank you for the gift. So, so what are we to do with God, with his world he's given to us, with his existence, his love he's shown to us? We're to be thankful. We're to be thankful. We're to be grateful for the kindness shown. Now, the problem is, of course, we live in a market world. The problem is, of course, that we, we live in a world that is not run on, that actually hates this idea, that, that, that hates this idea so much that we have a very hard time getting gratuity. You see, there are basically two worlds you can live in. You can live in a world of grace, or you can live, alternatively, in the world of the marketplace. You can live in the world of grace, where you receive, or you can live in the world where you calculate out how much are people worth, where you uh, are certain of all your moves you make, you don't take too many risks, and where you master everything. You can live in a world simply of uh, causes. This is why much of modern thought is all about cause and effect. This is why the one-circle view it's all about domineering and mastering. It's all about violence because you have to control. The more you get your hands on, the more stuff you have, the more money you have, the more friends you have. All of that stuff means you're a better person. That's why you produce things. That's why your job is determined by how many bucks and how many people. How many bucks have you earned? How many hours have you worked? How many people have you known? This is why in the, in the church we see this. How many Christians have you gotten saved in the last year? How many Bible verses have you memorized? How many theology books do you have or have you read? How many prayers have you prayed? We, we, even, especially perhaps in the church, we are driven by a market economy. This is a classic misunderstanding of the atonement. I don't know how many times I've, I've, I've tried to explain the cross to people and they come to me and say, yeah, okay, I, I, I get it. Jesus paid a price, and now because he paid a price, God loves you. No. Because God loved me, he sends Jesus Christ. But of course, even in that, we corrupt the most precious thing of the atonement. 
Because we still believe in a barter economy. We still believe that with God we trade. One philosopher says that today, everything is now bought and sold. Relationships, you buy and sell people, you stay married as long as they meet your contract ideas, as long as you feel like it. All business deals are calculated to bring us profit, and therefore all relationships are calculated to bring us profit. I will talk to you if you benefit me. If I think that you are attractive or you're, you're good or you're smart or you have money or you have connections, I'll talk to you. I'll scratch your back, and then, hey, maybe down the road, you know, you'll do something for me. This is how we treat the world. It's how we treat our name. It's how we treat people. It's how we make friends. You make friends with people who uh, either like something that you like, so you get mutual joy out of it, or will do something for you. This is the market world. But the Bible mocks that false view. The Bible mocks this market society. You cannot strike a deal with God. He gives you everything. He makes all things. He is the maker of heaven and earth. And the Bible's picture of humans is not as a wheeler dealer. You're not in the corporate boardroom with God. You're not on the board. You're not making some great deal with God. You're not signing a contract with him on the dotted line. It's not Faust. Rather, you're a kid on Christmas morning every single day. The Christian is the ultimate kid Christmas morning getting gifts that you didn't deserve, that you didn't measure up to, you didn't earn. Every single day, free gift, not contractual obligation, is at the heart of the Bible's picture of reality. You see that not just in salvation, but in very creation itself. God did not create because he was compelled to. He did so gratuitously, freely, not by necessity. Now, of course, once he wills to do it, he does it, yes. And here's the deal. This explains why in our world, there still is this, in our American world, there still is this idea that people who are weak need help. People who are poor need welfare. People who are sick need a doctor. People who are low or marginalized need assistance. People who are, well, we think maybe immediately of abortion, of course, and that is one great example, but there's so many examples that whether you're Christian or not, because we've been baked in the Christian idea of creation, baked in the Christian world of grace, we still have remnants of it. We still have threads of it that are all over our world, the idea of equality. Why do we have this idea that people should get uh, respect and dignity and value? It's a Christian idea. It's not, a, it's not an idea that comes from the marketplace. The marketplace says, trample on the weak. <laughs> They're suckers. They didn't make a good deal. They're stupid people. I get the money. I put in the effort. I was a smart guy. I ran the con. They fell for it. They're suckers. But the primacy of the gift, even in creation, God is the maker of heaven and earth, lays the foundation for a compassionate society, for a caring world that you want to live in. You want to live in that world. Your neighbors want to live in that world. It's a Christian world. It's a Christian idea from start to finish. So I could go on further, but I don't want to get ahead of myself here. Uh, I guess that's kind of also um, number three. You know, we we live either uh, off of tips from God, off of his gratuity, or we put in our day's work and we live out of that. You either are self-reliant living on your merit, or you live on the free gift of Christ's merit for you. Any questions on that concept, that really crucial distinction here, or any, anything y'all want to add or push back on, perhaps? 
which is also me stalling to get some water so I don't dry out. One more sip. One of the ways we see this gratuity is in the way the opening chapter of Scripture repeats one key word, all, every, similar words, everything. Verse 21, God created the sea creatures, every living creature that moves, every winged bird. Verse 20, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Verse 25, everything that creeps on the ground, God made. All, every, everything. Adam, in verse 28, rules over all living things. Every living thing. Verse 29, God says to Adam, I have given you every plant, every tree, to every beast and every bird and everything that creeps, everything that has the breath of life, every green plant. Verse 31, finally, the culmination. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Evening and morning, day six, six day. Why is that important? It signals that God is not just gratuitous in a baby bit. He doesn't just create one of everything. He doesn't even just create two by two, as in the ark. But it emphasizes again and again that God is not a minimalist. He's not a minimalist when it comes to his world. He's a Baroque. He's a Baroque guy. He creates over and over and over again. He proliferates species and ecosystems. He super abundantly gives excess more and more. He does not give you tasteless white pills to eat for every meal. He does not make you into a clone. He does not just give one bird, one dog, one sea creature. Of course, if he had to make one animal, it would be a dog. You know that. The answer, of course, is that God does not create just enough. He does not do just enough. He does not kind of get a little bit above average. You know, most Americans say we're above average. He does not do something above average. He creates super, he does not limit supply to the level of demand. Way too much supply. Last estimate is 8.7 million species on the face of the earth. Why? Our human eyes can distinguish, they tell me, between 7 and 10 million colors. Why? The stars. You know how many stars there are? In our galaxy alone, the Milky Way, over 300 million. Perhaps 2 trillion. That's 2 million million galaxies in the universe. Why? That's a waste, God. That's a waste of everything. Unless it's not a waste. God makes a universe that's a riot. That's just overflowing. That's incredible. That's amazing. He does not make a gray, dull world. And yet, and this I think is the fourth thing on the outline, he creates a world that's beautiful, but not just beautiful. He creates a world that combines beauty and function. Form and function. You know, you know what they say, right? Uh, if you want to eat somewhere, you can either eat somewhere that's uh, fast and cheap, but not good, or you can eat somewhere that's 
fast and good but not cheap or somewhere that's uh, good and cheap but not fast. You, know, you can get two out of three. That's what, they, that's what, I, that's what I, I got told. If you want to find a place to eat. We don't know what it's like to have form and function match up very well. Very hard to do that in designing things. Designing homes, decorating, and designing uh, uh, buildings. It's hard to have form and function match up. But God synergizes beauty and functionality. M- many of y'all may know this. It's a common uh, apologetic thing to note. The scientists tell us that if, if one of six physical constants that describe our universe differed by even a minuscule amount, the universe would cease to exist. Six physical constants. If, if one of them was just a little bit off, and of course you know about the atmosphere of the earth probably, and how if it differed, the gas composition differed by just a little bit, we couldn't breathe. So the universe is not slapdash. God's not just you know throwing paint at the wall and saying, oh, beauty! Lots of it, randomly. No, he designs it, he orders it, but it's not a straitjacket. It's super abundant, systematic world. Or to put it this way, he, he, uh, in God's world, there's a marriage between the tie-dye, bohemian artist, the grungy guy, the artsy guy, and the round spectacle suited up, hands right here all the time, regimented, stem person. No offense to stem people, no offense to artist people. God combines the artist and the engineer. He does so in his universe. He does so beautifully. He creates a world of form. He creates a world of beauty. He makes heaven and earth. Comments on that. Thoughts on that? Questions on that? Greg, yes, sir. Realizing all the greatness there um, that God created for his glory. And then, you know, after getting to it, I know that then he created us. (laughs) And we are the the pinnacle of his creation. And to think of I think we have such a low view of, I mean, we think highly of ourselves, but you know, we are to reflect. We are made in his image. And yeah. He is you know, so great of the galaxies and all this that he's done. And, and it's just, why? Because he can. Yeah. You know? and, and I think you, you hit on it just a minute ago, too, is the aspect of it. I'd love to review the passage in Romans 1. You know, that what, is, what is the great sin? We, we don't give him glory and we don't give him thanks. We are to be grateful people. Yeah. Thankful people. Yeah, those are all good points, Greg. Yeah, thank you. Hmm. Anything else? All right, the time we have left, I want to skip to the very end. Because when we confess God is the maker of heaven and earth, we say something as well about uh, the end of all things. We'll, of course, cover this in more detail uh, when we get to this portion in the creed. But I do at least want to mention and, and uh, tip my hat to the fact that God is also the maker of the new heavens and the new earth. Um, if you want to look at Revelation 21, we'll be there for uh, a little bit of our time. Um, it's a bit of a disaster, I think, as Christians. It's a bit of a disaster um, that... In many circles, this book of Revelation 
is, uh, well, mostly a book for wackos. I use that term loosely. It's mostly a book for people who want to look at the future or people who only want to look at the past and don't want to actually say, what does it mean for us today? As I mentioned at the very start of our time this morning, uh, you have to know the beginning and the end of the Bible. You can't just know the middle. We're really good in the middle. But if you come in the middle of a conversation, you can't follow it. You don't know where it's been. You don't know where it's going. We need to know the beginning. We need to know the end as well. And so <clears throat> one effect of the book of Revelation is to instruct us about the new heavens and the new earth. And it does that really by, by presenting to us uh, a little bit of what I've been talking about, the marketplace. The marketplace in the, as, as, a, as a picture, an image, a city called Babylon. The marketplace. The marketplace of empire, the marketplace of power. You can go through, I don't have time to get through all of it, but... Um, this is Babylon, the prostitute, compared to uh, verse 2, chapter 21. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What's the picture here? The, the, the world of grace, the world that God makes, and the, world, the new world that God makes is presented as the new Jerusalem, not as a prostitute, but as a bride, a holy city, a pure bride. Um, the splendor of God's glory in Jerusalem is compared to the splendor of Babylon that's gathered through exploitation, gathered through violence. And let, me just, uh, let me just read a, a, a little bit here. Um, chapter, chapter uh, let me see here, what do I want to look at? Um, yeah, I'll read 17 to be fine. 17 uh, verse Verse 4, <clears throat> the woman arrayed, this is the woman of Babylon, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations. The picture, of course, here is of a mighty city, a powerful city, and yet a city that has gained it by killing, by destruction, by the idea of the market place. Um, this is verse 9 of chapter 18. The kings of the earth who li lived in luxury with Babylon, they'll weep over her when judgment comes. Verse 11, the merchants of the earth. This is 1811. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, etc. I can't have time to read all the list. Notice it ends with slaves, that is, human souls. Just a side note. The great city, verse 16, I can go on, but you see the picture. A beautiful, a beautiful yet antithetical, a subversive picture of the marketplace. Babylon has wine that makes the nations drunk. What do you find in Jerusalem? Water of life. You find the water of life. Worshippers of the beast never have rest. Jerusalem rests for her labors. The power of the new Jerusalem, the power of the new heavens and the new earth is the power of God's redemptive grace. And it's super abundant. It's super abundant. Um, just for example, um, just like in the beginning, God has no rival at the end of the Bible. 
I mean, you know, you know, God has no rival. We're kind of, because of the, the 20th century church in America, unfortunately, we're kind of souped up, we're kind of uh, fed and drugged on, on visions of Armageddon as some great battle, you know, as some great kind of military conflict and uh, all these sort of things. But it's actually not that at all. The picture is Satan gets thrown like a fire. There's no real battle. Because he's not a rival. At the end of the day, he's not anything compared to God. Faced with the absolute power of the almighty creator. And unlike all the supervillains, you know, all the supervillains, they always get a speech at the end. You know, you watch the the films, you watch the thrillers, and there's always that final scene where the hero comes into the lair. And, you know, the supervillain always says, oh, here's my mighty plan. Ha, ha, ha. There's no no little supervillain monologue at the end of the Bible. The devil doesn't get some, you know, oh, my great plan. No, he's just done away with because he's not a supervillain. He's not a supervillain. Instead, death is swallowed up in victory. We see that, as I'll close here, with the picture of the New Jerusalem as a temple garden city. The New Jerusalem is not just a city. It's a temple It's a garden. It's a city. On the garden imagery, just note a few things here. I don't have time to get into all this. There is more than one tree of life. There are more precious stones in the end of the Bible than at the beginning of the Bible. And the river is not just a four, does not come from four random areas. It comes from the very throne room of God. The point is that the imagery you see in Eden is intensified. It's better than what you find. Uh, it, it's better in Revelation than what you find in Genesis. Moreover, where's the sun? Where's the moon? There's no sun. There's no moon. There's nothing accursed. It's verse 5, chapter 22, Revelation. Night will be no more. They will have no need of light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. See, the picture is that the curse is done away with, but more than that, it's a better place than what you have in the Garden of Eden, that God makes, and He makes again. He makes better. He makes even more super abundantly. That's the garden imagery. Second, the city imagery. You know, obviously you have Babylon, is a depiction of kind of cities. You know, some Christians are very anti-city. Some Christians are like a city, bad place. You know, you go to Vegas. You don't want to go to cities. Cities are bad places. And, you know, there's some point to that. The first city founded is by Cain, who kills his brother Abel. You think about Rome. Rome is founded when Romulus kills Remus. You think about the uh, cities of the Western world. Why are we free today in America, in the West? Because people paid the sacrifice of death in two world wars. But the city of God is founded on the blood of Christ. It's very different. The city of God is founded upon the Lamb who sits in the throne of heaven, not the blood of the enemy, not the blood of the one you hate, not the blood of the lower classes, not the blood of the weak. It is the only city founded on the perfect blood of its leader and its king, Jesus Christ. Pour it out for many. And then last, I'll have to close here. I'm trying to give you a sense of the, the beauty of God as the creator and the recreator. 
garden city finally out of order temple. You may know that the New Jerusalem is a perfect cube. You know that, right? New Jerusalem. That's one of the things we kind of know if we read in Revelation. New Jerusalem is a perfect cube. <clears throat> What's interesting is, well, as well is that um, there's only one other perfect cube in the Bible. Bible trivia question. We have time, I suppose, for this. What's the only other perfect cube in the Bible? Holy of Holies. Very good, Rick. Thank you. Excellent. The only other perfect cube is the Holy of Holies. 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high. This is where God should kind of glory dwelt. And of course, you know, generally, if you don't, I'll tell you, the high priest there could only enter once a year. Only one man, one time, once a year. And uh, that was it and he might die in there. <clears throat> Those are the two perfect cubes. But what's interesting is that we're told in Revelation 21, 22, I saw no temple in the city. That's interesting, because if it's a perfect you know, cube, you expect some kind of temple there. Or at least it's part of a temple, but what do we read? Its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. What does that mean? What do we see here when God recreates and makes heaven and earth again in the New Jerusalem? Well, <clears throat> there's no temple because there's no need for atonement. There's no temple because there's no need for sacrifice. There's no temple because there's no need to have gradations. You know, in the tabernacle, in the, in the, in the Old Testament temple, you have a lot of restrictions. Gentiles could only go in the court of the Gentiles, the outside court. The women could come in the middle court. And, of course, only one man once a year could come in the Holy of Holies. A lot of restrictions. But now, verse 3, Revelation 21, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. Now, this, this uh, two words are used here by John in this verse. I'll do a little bit of word uh, uh, analysis for a second. That word man, the ESV, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's simply the Greek anthropos that John uses for humanity. No longer is there a division between women and men. No longer a division between uh, Gentiles and Jews. And then he writes in this second part of the verse, they will be his people. And that's, that's the word um, ethne, from ethnos. It's the plural for the term that's used in Ezekiel 37, 27 of God's covenant people. What's the upshot of all that? Let me give you the upshot of all of it. The new Jerusalem is for all of God's covenant people. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, no matter what. It is far more beautiful. Do you see? The Bible depicts that God is maker of heaven and earth. And you look around and you say, heaven and earth ain't much. But the beautiful thing about it is that God ain't just maker of heaven and earth. He remakes heaven and earth. And he does so in a beautiful garden temple city that it's so crazy abundant you won't believe it. it's more he does for you more than you deserve every single day and he will do more for his people every single hour ah i got maybe one minute for a question or a comment that's why we confess god's maker of heaven and earth any questions comments cares concerns i could have covered a lot more but uh going once Going twice. No bold statements. All right, let me, uh, let me close with some prayer. We can get ready for uh, the worship. 
Let's pray. Almighty God, we come before you. We thank you that you don't just uh, make us clones. You don't just make us all gray people. You don't give us just an eye that can figure out one color or four or 32. You give us super abundant grace. You give us a world that is full of color. You give us lives that are desiring to be beautiful. You give us hearts that want to see form and function follow each other. Lord, you make us. We thank you that you remake us and you remake us even more super abundantly beautiful. Help us to contend against that market economy, that idea that we only do for people what they will do for us. We only treat you like uh, you earned our love, like you've earned our gift. Lord, let us instead worship you as the God who is other, the God who is a creator, yet the God who comes to us in Christ. We pray in his name these things. Amen. Thank you.